0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright
1: 2024.
0: Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, a psychologist and a neuroscientist unravel the inner workings of the brain. We find out what happens when people use their multiple
1: intelligences working together when they think. The synthesizing mind takes in all kinds of information, and then, depending on the issues that, that the mind is interested in, tries to organize that information so it'll be useful to the self and to others. And... How can technology tap into the abilities of the ever-changing brain?
2: We can pass in other kinds of information, for example, infrared light, stock market data, or information from a drone. And as long as there's correlations that the brain can make, it can figure out how to have a direct perceptual experience of these.
0: But first, the year 2020 hasn't exactly been one for frequent flyer miles. Most of us have been stuck at home, unable to jet away for work or holiday. But while planes have been grounded, the aviation industry has come under pressure to curb carbon dioxide emissions, with countries like France proposing eco-taxes on flights. Aircraft typically burn kerosene, a cheap, dirty fuel derived from petroleum. It allows for inexpensive flights, but pumps carbon dioxide directly into the atmosphere. Can the airline industry go green by dint of the first element of the periodic table, hydrogen? What is certain is that the scale of the challenge is enormous.
3: If we think about carbon dioxide alone, aviation is responsible for about 25 to 3% of artificial emissions.
0: Gilad Ahmed is our science correspondent for The Economist.
3: Now in a year, unaffected by a pandemic with business as usual, that's currently around 900 million tons of CO2 a year. And if we extrapolate forward for that, and even allowing for inevitable small bits of improvements in efficiency, the figure is expected to double by 2050. And on the same time scale, the industry is committed to cutting emissions by two thirds. So the challenge is immense. One technology that's generating a lot of interest is hydrogen power, which can offer a green and sustainable alternative to existing propulsion technology.
0: Okay, so how can hydrogen help?
3: Hydrogen can be used to power an aircraft in three main ways, all of which result in a significantly smaller climate footprint than kerosene which is the current fuel of choice. You can use it to power fuel cells which like batteries can generate electric power. You can burn it as a fuel in a jet engine as an alternative to kerosene or you can use it to generate synthetic alternatives to kerosene without the need to go digging up fossil fuels. And depending on which technology you choose for which aircraft Experts estimate it might be possible to hit those industry targets using hydrogen alone. So hydrogen has some great properties and it also has some drawbacks. In terms of how much energy it carries, it's phenomenal. It packs three times more energy per kilogram uh, than kerosene, which means your plane can be much lighter, which is a definite plus but it only has a quarter of the energy per liter, which means your plane can be lighter, but it's gonna be much bulkier. And for something that needs to glide seamlessly through the air, that's a real disadvantage. Also, if you want to make hydrogen usable as a fuel, you need to store it in its liquid state, and that requires conditions barely above absolute zero, which is not an easy thing to find room for on a plane.
0: So give us the basic version on how it works.
3: The simplest way for hydrogen to power a plane is in something called a hydrogen fuel cell, which can be thought of as a rechargeable battery, which generates electricity so long as there's enough hydrogen and air inside it. Those two gases are stored in containers, they're separated by a thin membrane which breaks up the hydrogen into positive charges and electrons and then only allows the positive charges to flow through now this causes a build-up of positive charge on one side and a build-up of electrons on the other which are, are left behind they can't go through the barrier so those electrons can then be routed through a wire which then carries them round to the other side where they can be reconnected with their long-lost positive brothers and that flow of electrons outside of the cell is electricity, which can be used to power a motor, turn a propeller, and make a small light plane lift off.
0: So how does the technology compare to traditional batteries? In many ways,
3: they're similar. They can be used for many of the same functions. Batteries can power acceleration in a way that fuel cells can't. They don't have that same oomph. But Batteries are much heavier and less efficient. So for very small planes or even sort of drones capable of carrying individual people, that isn't really a problem. But if you're talking about bigger planes with more passengers and longer journeys, the the technology for batteries is just far behind even where, where fuel cells are.
0: Now, you point out that hydrogen has been floated before, pun intended, as a potential fuel, but it hasn't panned out. So why not? What prevented it?
3: It was the logistical challenges mainly. In the 1950s, the US Air Force funded a, a top secret project called Project Suntan, which took place in the Florida Everglades, which tried to build a hydrogen fuel powered plane. And they were able to build the engine, and their design is still inspirational for many people treading the same path today. But the logistical challenges of fueling the plane, providing the sort of transportation infrastructure, for these cryogenically cooled capsules of of liquid hydrogen, just were not feasible.
0: Didn't hydrogen bring down the Hindenburg?
3: Now, you've just said the one H-word that you shouldn't mention in the presence of anybody involved in the hydrogen industry. They react very badly to any mention of it. It's a very different way of making use of hydrogen, rather than simply as something lighter than air. It's stored in very different conditions, which are much safer. Hydrogen is transported as a liquid all around the world without accidents. And there are also a couple of sort of safety features that hydrogen has. For one thing, it burns at much higher temperatures. So it's quite difficult for a fire to start. And because it's light and burns fast in the way it's stored, it dissipates very quickly. So it doesn't really have time to set anything else on fire. But the aviation
0: industry feels that they can actually finally use hydrogen.
3: It's been considered by one company or another for a very long time. One of the biggest steps that is now being taken towards making hydrogen real is that lots of different sectors are taking an interest in hydrogen and making serious investments in its manufacture. Aviation alone probably doesn't have the spending power to make hydrogen storage, transportation, manufacture commercially viable. But with industry, home heating, all willing to invest in order to make hydrogen a usable fuel, then collectively there could be enough investment to lower the price enough for aviation to make use of it. And there are signs that this technology is being developed. In September, for example, Airbus, one of the world's leading manufacturers of, of, of aircraft, unveiled something that they call their zero emissions or zero-E project, which are new concepts for airplane designs which would be powered both by a hydrogen-burning jet engine and hydrogen fuel cells and could carry upwards of 100 passengers, which they're hoping to have these available by 2035.
0: And there are rival technologies that are vying to power big planes too, aren't there?
3: In terms of the sustainable options, the most sort of well thought of at the moment are what are called sustainable aviation fuels. These are either biofuels or synthetic fuels, which, again, in many cases do rely on hydrogen to sort of build up chemicals that are similar to kerosene and so on, but they don't involve new fossil fuels entering the climate. And these are not as green as things like hydrogen burning engines or fuel cells, but they're easier to implement because you can burn them in an existing engine. You don't have to redesign the engine or the plane in order to generate liftoff.
0: Glad, Emmet. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. For more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. It's a great festive gift, too. So once again, that's economist.com slash podcast And don't forget to tell them Ken sent you. Coming up, a psychologist and a neuroscientist lift the hood on what's going on in our heads.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Next up, what is intelligence and how should it be measured? IQ tests were first created more than a century ago, and they're still widely used as a measure of an individual's mental ability. But screening for general intelligence in this way is highly controversial and has long divided scientists. The Harvard psychologist Howard Gardner is a leading thinker on cognition and mental development. He came to fame in the 1980s with his theory of multiple intelligences it's the idea that people have spatial and verbal and even interpersonal intelligence, not just the logical sort favored by standardized tests. Since then, he's been working to expand the scientific understanding of the ways humans process information. His latest book is a memoir of that effort and its continuation. It's called, appropriately enough, The Synthesizing Mind.
1: Multiple intelligences is a concept that I came up with uh, in the early 1980s. My theory is based on research from a number of different areas, including brain studies, and I claim the human mind is better described as a set of several different computers, which I call the multiple intelligences, and they range from linguistic and logical mathematical, which is what IQ tests look at, to understanding of yourself, understanding of other people, musical intelligence, bodily intelligence, spatial intelligence, and the ensemble, I think, is the right way to think about the human mind, whether you're in education or in business or just trying to understand the people around you and yourself.
0: Now, it's been over 25 years, and I wonder if the ensemble approach is really well understood because the IQ test still exists and standardized tests look at language and at mathematics, but not at other abilities. Do you feel that your life has been an abject failure in terms of the adoption of multiple intelligences?
1: No, I actually think that it's surprising to me to what extent the idea of different kinds of intelligence, whether they're called social or emotional um, or artistic intelligence, has become part of the language really all over the world. Look, if you're trying to predict how someone's going to do in a certain kind of school and you have an hour to do it, an IQ test or an SAT is a reasonable measure because after all, language and logic are still foregrounded in all the schools that I know about. But if you're trying to think about people in your own life, if you're trying to think about the workplace, if you're trying to think about leisure, if you're trying to think about what to do when you're stuck in a pandemic for months, then the, uh, the IQ test is really of no help at all. And that's where a broader, more capacious view of intellects is really um, at a premium.
0: Well, actually, let's drill down at that for a moment and think about education in a time of COVID. The pandemic has changed the way that we're schooling our children and the ways that children learn. What does that mean in terms of multiple intelligences? Do you see some sort of validation in your theory
1: that can be applied today? I think that we're very fortunate to live in a time when we can communicate with all different kinds of media. The one other thing I would say is that when you're an adult and you're pretty well motivated, you can probably learn a tremendous amount of things simply online. But the younger you are, the more you need social kinds of support from other people. And I think there, learning online is not enough, whether you have teachers or siblings or relatives or parents who are involved in day-to-day learning. is very, very important because learning is not simply what you get out of a book or what you get out of a speech, but what you get out of a social setting where we're communicating all kinds of information in all kinds of ways. You and I are talking, but auditorily, we could do a lot better if I had maps and charts and music and so on, but we're, we're doing what we, what we can through the audio channel.
0: Okay, so let me f- take that and flip it in the other direction and say that as artificial intelligence continues at this breakneck pace throughout society, whether human intelligence might suffer. Do you feel like we'll be losing any of our intelligences because of technology?
1: I wrote the book, A Synthesizing Mind, because I was convinced that in the 21st century, a synthesizing mind is the most important mind. I'm perfectly happy to have AI do the number crunching. In fact, it does it for me like everybody else. But the decisions on what to investigate, how to investigate it, and then crucially, When the answers come out what to do with those answers, those are distinctly human things. The synthesizing mind takes in all kinds of information and then, depending on the issues that that the mind is interested in, tries to organize that information so it'll be useful to the self and to others. And then importantly, makes recommendations of what to do for the wider society. But I don't want to live in a world with the decisions of what to look at, and then how to make sense of the answers you get will be downloaded to some app. And psychology, in my own field, has done almost nothing for teaching synthesizing, and I know why. Synthesis takes a long time. It's very difficult to uh, capture it in a short answer test, like an IQ test. Darwin is one of the great examples. Darwin went on the Beagle around the world when he was in his 20s. He didn't publish on the origin of species until he was in his 50s because it took 30 years to do all that synthesis. Now we're not all Darwins, but to understand that process takes a long time. Okay, I can't object to that. However, I could
0: sort of ante up and say, If it is indeed so important, why do you not classify it as a form of intelligence in its own right?
1: Great question. And the answer is because I think the synthesizing mind draws on the different intelligences which each of us has. But the way we synthesize differs based on the problems we're looking at and the way our mind works. So to be specific, while I'm a fairly typical scholar in language and logic, my synthesizing benefits tremendously from musical intelligence and from naturalist intelligence. Because I see works of scholarship very much like a symphony or a concerto, a complex tapestry which needs to be woven together in a sensible way. And as I do groupings, which are necessary for synthesizing, so what I would say, Ken, is the synthesis is what happens when all... Your intelligence are used maximally to understand what you want to understand. If you want to call that a separate intelligence, that's fine with me.
0: Now, whether your mind tends towards the linguistic or the logical, the spatial or the emotional, it is never static. This is most evidently and miraculously seen after an injury. Our most intricate organ works around wounds, generating new neural connections so that a person may relearn how to walk or perhaps talk. This extraordinary ability to write and rewrite synaptic pathways is present in everyone, all the time. It goes by the name, learning. And what we learn, and how we learn it, continue to shape neural development over our entire lives.
2: Every moment of your life, your brain is changing. You've got 86 billion neurons and 0.2 quadrillion connections.
0: David Eagleman is a neuroscientist at Stanford University and one of the world's foremost thinkers on how cognitive science influences technology and how those inventions will shape society. His latest book is LiveWired, the inside story of the ever-changing brain.
2: These are constantly changing the strength of their connections and unplugging and replugging and seeking and so on, like a dynamic electric living fabric, changing to absorb the experiences that you have. And and in the field of neuroscience, we typically call this brain plasticity. But that word came about because the great psychologist William James was impressed at plastic molding, that you could push something into shape and it would hold that shape. But what's actually happening under the hood is far more than just, you know, making something and holding it there. Here in Silicon Valley, all we ever talk about is hardware and software, but a live-wired system is one that's constantly changing itself and rewriting its own circuitry all the time.
0: David, I was immediately hooked by what you call the Mr. Potato Head model of brain function. How does that work?
2: If you look at our eyes and our ears and our nose and our fingertips and so on, we're sort of used to these and we think these are fundamental in some way. But when you look across the animal kingdom, you see that instead of just detecting photons and air compression waves and mixtures of molecules, you have animals that are picking up on electrical fields or the magnetic fields of the earth. What I started realizing is Mother Nature doesn't actually have to reinvent the principles of brain operation over and over each time, all she needs to do is figure out the brain once, and then she can mess around with the genetics to make new peripheral sensors, and then just plug them in. The whole key is that the brain, of course, is ensconced in silence and darkness, and it doesn't know what any of these things are. It doesn't actually directly see light or hear sound. All it ever gets are spikes of electrical activity, So your eyes convert photons into spikes. Your ears convert air compression waves into spikes and so on. And that's all the brain has access to. And it's really good at extracting patterns and assigning meaning to things. And it turns out whatever you feed in, the brain will figure out what to do with it.
0: It would sort of suggest that all we need is the sensor, not the processor behind it, in order to have new senses. Couldn't I have the same way to navigate through the darkness like a bat?
2: That's exactly right. So there's, there's evidence for this from various directions in neuroscience, for example, in animal studies, people plug in infrared detectors or magnetic compasses or things like that, and the animal can, can learn to use those signals to, to navigate and to uh, perform tasks. And so what we've done in humans is we built originally a vest with vibratory motors on it. Now we have it down to the size of a, a wristband with vibratory motors. And we, for example, capture sound and turn it into patterns of vibration on the skin. And so for people who are deaf, we are, instead of pushing information through the ear, we're pushing information through the skin and they can figure out how to use it. They can come to hear through their skin. And of course, it's because from the brain's point of view, It's getting the signals and it's able to make correlations, for example, with what it sees. It sees somebody's mouth moving, it feels these signals on the skin, and it figures out what to do with it. It turns out we can pass in other kinds of information, for example, infrared light, or even give brand new senses that have never existed before, like stock market data or Twitter data or information from a drone. And as long as there's correlations that the brain can make with other things it's looking at, it can figure out how to have a direct perceptual experience of these.
0: You've made the point that behind all of this, there's a purpose of the brain, and that is to create a mental model of its surroundings, of reality. Tell me more about this.
2: Yeah. Essentially, that is all the brain is ever trying to do, locked in its dark throne room. It's just trying to figure out what information is coming in and what can I do with my body to interact with the world that way. So it's always trying to make an internal model. And by the way, one of the things that I think is so interesting about 2020 is... Our internal models, most of us for the first time in our lives, aren't working so well. Suddenly the pandemic comes along and and we're knocked off our hamster wheels. Everything is now something to be re-examined in a way. And so as as terrible as 2020 has been for almost everybody in terms of stress and anxiety and depression and so on, the one silver lining is it actually gets our brain to do some extra work, which it turns out is the most important thing you can do to stave off Dementia is put your brain into challenging situations where it has to figure things out afresh.
0: Okay, I find it so optimistic that the brain has these capabilities. You sometimes brush your teeth with your other hand, and you sometimes drive through routes that you would not normally take for the purpose of challenging your mind. But I kind of feel like it's the same old me. How can I personally get better?
2: You know, it's fascinating, this thing that we feel like it's the same old us, because in fact, you change every day. But yes, the way to, you know, constantly make sure you're changing yourself is simply by seeking things in the realm between frustrating and achievable. Because the brain is trying to make an internal model of the outside world, as it gets better and better at it, it gets less and less plastic. You're just, you're not making as many changes in order to keep change happening in the brain, you have to put yourself into novel situations. And so, you know, the pandemic is something that happened to us, but there are a million things to learn and skills and pieces of knowledge and so on. And so running a podcast where you invite guests on to talk about their things is a terrific way to to keep the system going, keep it plastic.
0: Fantastic. So we are going to make all of our listeners smarter by having you on our show. David Eagleman, Thank you very much.
2: Great. Thank you, Ken.
0: Thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to share with listeners what you like about the show. If you want to contact us, please email us at radio at economist.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Kenneth Couquier, And in London, where I'm thinking about thinking, this is The Economist.